Today, as we continue to explore the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to look at not just the content of what Jesus says in Matthew 5, verses 13 through 48, but the way in which he speaks. Our lesson begins with Jesus employing two metaphors. You are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. A metaphor, of course, is a figure of speech where one thing is said to be something it actually isn't. But by saying it is that other thing, we encounter a deeper and richer meaning to the first term in the metaphor. Shakespeare loved metaphors, as most poets do. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players, he wrote in As You Like It. It's not absolutely true that the world is a stage, but it is true enough to make us think about how often in life we are merely playing a part instead of being authentically ourselves. Simply put, I think metaphors are so powerful because they expand our understanding and appreciation of something by making us see things in a new light. In one of the richest metaphors in all of scripture, Jesus tells us in John chapter 6, verse 63, the words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. We would be too quick with our English grammar if we simply analyzed that statement as a metaphor, however. In John, when Jesus said his words are spirit and life, he is speaking out of an ancient biblical understanding that breath is literally spirit, not metaphorically spirit, but truly spirit as it is the breath of life that God himself has breathed into us. Our breath is our spirit and our life. But in John's gospel, Jesus is fully aware that he is the word of God come down from heaven and made one of us in human flesh. Jesus's words are spirit and life. This becomes even more dramatically clear when he appears to the apostles in the upper room. He breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. It is Jesus's words that become our spirit and life. And that is something, while he never said it, Matthew would absolutely agree with. Jesus does not employ metaphors in the Sermon on the Mount with such dramatic literal intent, but he does make profound use of metaphors and hyperbole. Jesus was quite given to exaggeration. And he also delivered what today we might call shockers. We will delve into all these now. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its taste, with what can it be seasoned? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. The first thing to notice here is that as followers of Jesus, he is speaking to you and me as much as he is addressing his original disciples. And what we should be hearing is that Jesus is recognizing something wonderful in us. We are the salt of the earth. Salt in the ancient world was an extremely important commodity. Slaves worked to death to mine it. Our word for professional pay, salary, literally comes from the Latin for salt, as Roman soldiers were at some point actually paid in salt, which they could trade in the marketplace for anything they needed. It is often noted that one of the most important uses of salt was to preserve food. Without refrigeration, one of the few ways to keep meat from spoiling was to infuse it with salt. Fish was often transformed into a jerky-like substance 
to keep it edible for long periods of time. Many commentators make note of salt's preservative character in examining what it means to be the salt of the earth. We are called to be in the world in such a way as we preserve the world from utter corruption or putrefaction. But it is the savoriness of salt that Jesus emphasizes. He warns us that salt can lose its taste. And this puzzles some readers. Chemists tell us that as long as our salt-receptive taste buds are working, salt cannot lose its taste. Our commentary discusses how salt in Jesus' day might have seemed to become tasteless, but let's focus on the real message here. God has called us to play an extremely important role in the world, but we have to live up to our calling. Does that mean that without us living out our calling as the salt of the earth, that the world itself will become unpalatable to God? Is it God's love of the world we are called to preserve? Some see it that way, but I think it more likely that our purpose as salt of the earth is to make living a faithful life filled with mercy and forgiveness something that will arouse the appetite of the world. If we can truly represent Christ in the world, the world will develop a hunger to savor the gospel. This interpretation seems to be in perfect harmony with Jesus' next extended metaphor. You are the light of the world. A city set on a mountain cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and then put it under a bushel basket. It is set on a lampstand where it gives light to all in the house. Just so, your light must shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your heavenly Father. Just as it is not God who needs salt in order to love the world, it is not God who needs light to see. It is the world that needs light. A light that would be hid under a basket would give off no light for anything but itself. Salt invites hungry guests to enjoy food that will truly nourish them, and light attracts those in danger of stumbling in darkness to see a safe path for their feet. Schools of preaching have often taught pastors to use a simple outline known as the three-point sermon. Any more than three points and you lose the congregation, it is said. Still others emphasize that there should really only be one main point. Jesus' main point was told to us by Matthew in chapter 3, verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Sermon on the Mount is certainly all gathered up under that one umbrella, but the points keep coming at us one after another. It seems there's no pause after learning how we are to stay salty and burn our light brightly before Jesus turns attention to himself with words chosen to make certain that no one misunderstands what he is teaching. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. Amen, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or the smallest part of a letter will pass from the law until all things have taken place. Now taken at face value, it would seem that Jesus was insisting that even the smallest detail of Mosaic law was to be binding upon all his followers forever or at least until heaven and earth pass away. If that is true, then Christians would have to become Jews before they could be baptized, 
and Paul's letters should have never been allowed into the New Testament. Consider this line in Ephesians and compare it to what Jesus appears to say in Matthew about the permanence of the law. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have become near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace. He who made both one and broke down the dividing wall of enmity through his flesh, abolishing the law with its commandments and legal claims. Paul is certain that not only the smallest letter or the smallest part of a letter had passed from the law, he was adamant that only the moral precepts of the law had any bearing on Christian living. Circumcision, food laws, and every ritual prescribed by the law had been done away with by Christ. How do we reconcile Matthew with Paul? Many say it's impossible. John P. Meyer, one of the most noted biblical scholars of our time, is certain that they are in essential agreement about the law being eclipsed by the death and resurrection of Christ. Meyer reminds us that more than any other gospel, Matthew is dedicated to demonstrating that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. When Jesus says in Matthew 5:17 that I have come not to abolish but to fulfill, it is in the sense of fulfilling prophecy that Jesus fulfills the law. In Matthew's view, Mosaic law awaited the Messiah, and Jesus, in his life and teaching, brought the law to its conclusion. Jesus alone perfectly lived out all the expectations and commandments of the law. And once he had done so, he brought about an apocalyptic end to the law by bringing about a new heaven and a new earth. During his life, Jesus kept his ministry and the mission of the apostles narrowly focused on the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But after rising from the dead, everything changed. Go, he told the apostles, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He does, however, tell them to teach the nations to observe all that he has previously commanded his disciples. It is Jesus and his teachings that are now the law. He is truly greater than Moses. This new law that all nations are to be taught to observe is what is laid out for us in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, 21 through 48, there are six sections where Jesus commented on Mosaic law or common understanding of the law. His comments were shocking. I don't know how many Christians today find them shocking. They appear to be somewhat plainly stated. You have heard it said, he reminds both his disciples and the crowds gathered about him of some common understanding of biblical commandments, and goes on to say, but I say to you. The shock is not just what he actually says about the commandments, though that too is extremely shocking, but in simply saying, but I say to you, Jesus is assuming an authority of such magnitude that it probably stunned anyone steeped in a traditional understanding and respect for Mosaic law so greatly that it wouldn't matter what else he said. Such a profound disbelief that anyone should speak in such a manner might have numbed their ears to anything that followed. Regardless of whatever any well-respected interpreters of the law had said on the matter, 
Jesus' pronouncements had greater authority than even what was written in Scripture itself, simply because he was the one pronouncing on the matter. Who did this guy think he was? Matthew wants us to sense the consternation that must have swept through the crowd, especially if there stood among them any scribes, Pharisees, or Sadducees whose identities hinged on their understanding of the law. Matthew was not writing for them, however. He recorded the Sermon on the Mount for those who professed faith in Jesus as the Messiah, the ultimate presence in the divine plan of salvation, the one who is Emmanuel, God with us. If we count ourselves as being one of those believers, however, we must not be so shocked by how Jesus speaks, but must instead take to heart what he commands. You have heard that it was said to your ancestors, you shall not kill, and whoever kills will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Jesus goes on to give examples of how anger manifests itself in everyday life. He seems to equate ridicule of others with the sin of murder. That should be a very scary thought for any of us who have ever been cut off in traffic by some jerk who got his driver's license in a Cracker Jack box. But Jesus is right. We all know that anger behind a steering wheel can lead to a road rage that kills. Anger is the first step on the path to killing. And just as anger kills, he also warns that lust is the root of adultery. This should be especially alarming today because lust has become a habitual lifestyle, addicting countless adults and even children at an early age because pornography is instantly available to anyone who can operate a smartphone or otherwise navigate the internet. And pornography kills. It kills the ability of those addicted to it to love and respect others as children of God. But does Jesus truly advocate plucking out our eyes or chopping off our hands if they lead us into sin? This is Jesus using hyperbole, deliberately using horrifying images of self-mutilation to emphasize the catastrophe sin can inflict upon our souls. We know it is hyperbole because Jesus also says that what contaminates a person comes from within a person. It is from within ourselves that we produce sinful acts. It is not our eyes or hands that inflict sin upon us. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a bill of divorce. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, unless the marriage is unlawful, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. It's what Jesus says about divorce that seems the most problematic in the church today. We live in a time and a society that places incredible stress on marriages. We all count among our friends and loved ones those who have divorced and that might also include ourselves. However we wrestle with divorce and remarriage within our Christian communities, we have to always bear in mind that in Jesus' day, it was a cultural reality that divorce, with only rare exceptions, put a woman at risk of being abandoned, with nowhere to turn for food, 
clothing, or shelter if she didn't remarry or resort to prostitution. Jesus' teaching about divorce was meant to preserve the dignity and well-being of women. Matthew records an exception to Jesus' teaching on divorce. Most scholars agree that the phrase that appears in parenthesis in Matthew 5.32, unless the marriage is unlawful, was probably added by a late scribe, but there is disagreement over what it means. The best answer seems to be that when Gentile couples became Christians, some of them had marriages to close relatives. Those marriages were forbidden in Jewish law, and the Catholic Church has never recognized them as valid marriages. Of all Jesus' teachings that use some form of the formula, you have heard it said, but I say to you, his teaching on divorce is the clearest example of him taking an authority that actually vacates the teaching of sacred scripture. In Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, a man's right to give his wife a bill of divorce is unquestioned. But the prophet Malachi clearly proclaims God's hatred of divorce. Jesus also forbids taking oaths, but the Catholic Church requires them of professed religious, a vow is an oath, and allows the taking of oaths in legal matters. My son is a Mennonite and is bound never to take an oath, even in a court of law. What seems clear to me is that Jesus wants all his followers to be so trustworthy in their affirmations and denials that no one would ever doubt them. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was a great step forward in ancient administration of justice. It greatly limited the extent of revenge for wrongdoings. Jesus, however, is not concerned with justice or court sentences for crimes here. He insists that his disciples, whose sole purpose in life is to bring Christ's presence into the world, must respond with merciful restraint, even to the point of exposing themselves to more harm in their attempts to demonstrate God's love, a love that extends itself even to one's enemies. In the last century and a half, some of the brightest minds in Christendom have noted that only someone absolutely convinced that the world was quickly coming to an end could possibly live out the ideals Jesus expresses in the Sermon on the Mount. It has also been noted, however, that Jesus flawlessly lived out those ideals. Jesus is our model for living in all things. Perhaps it is the imminent reality of the new world he will bring about, rather than the destruction of this world, that should serve as our motivation. <laughs>